This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Okay, so the article that we're going to talk about this time is Some Observations on the Pharmacology of Mitragenine. It's from the International Archives of Pharmacodynamics and Therapy from 1972. 72? Uh, yeah. <laughs> way, f- way before even I was born. Uh, <laughs> it's from uh, Smith, Klein, and French Laboratories out of Philadelphia. And this company originally started as a drugstore in 1830. By 1929, it was a research laboratory. Uh, One of its chemists, Gordon A. Alice, got a patent for amphetamine in 1932. And they merged to form SmithKline Beecham in 1989. And they merged with Glaxo Welcome in 2000 to become GlaxoSmithKline. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you I'm glad you laid that out because I didn't necessarily realize that these were R and D divisions for ostensibly pharmaceutical companies or private companies. These researchers w- weren't coming out of a university. Um, it's just interesting to note that, though. You know, I don't think that there's any uh, difference in how you can assess. You know, this is early product development. It's the same type of knowledge. You can't just sort of uh, write it off because of that. And a lot of work, a lot of good research gets done in those settings. Um, but just interesting to note, you know, this is an early R&D in the pharmaceutical company, which I think in light of, you know, where we go through this, this uh, what they report, it's just sort of interesting to know, has, far, how, have, has Big Pharma known about this the whole time? Like, that's an interesting question. Yeah, and, and I have that. Uh, I have that as one of the questions because it, it was like way back then, and they were drawing a lot of the conclusions that, you know, we have uh, seen in more recent studies. Um, and then I, I looked up a little bit about the guys. Uh, I, there wasn't much about mm-hmm. Edward Macko, the main chemist there, but um, uh, the other guy, Dr. Uh, Weisbach, Jerry Weisbach, led the team that discovered and developed uh, Adorvastatin or Lipitor. So, oh, dude, that is a big one. Yeah, I mean, he that's died a huge in 2002. one. Yeah, he's from. Wow. Uh, this is from uh, University of Michigan, and uh, he he was like a visiting professor there. After that was kind of his retired job, and then it's... the other guy became an uh, an executive of the company, Doctor Bryce Douglas. He was a Scottish chemist, but yeah, the Lipitor guy. That's what I thought was pretty interesting. That's some um, <laughs> that's some heavy hitters that then went on to. You know, set the found. I mean, uh, torvastatins or statins in general are one of the most effective medications we have, um, and are you know one of the only truly. When you look at the data over all the years we've used it, it's one of the only true pharmaceutical interventions that like regularly, confidently, statistically, significantly shows it reduces the ultimate uh, incident of heart disease or, or heart attack. Um, yeah. So, you know, even it, there's cholesterol is a whole other thing, but it, statins revolutionized uh, the ability to treat that and there hasn't really been any fallout. So, yeah, uh, these guys definitely uh, look to be curious and perform in a battery of tests um, 
this time, of course, on metragenine um, in animal models to, to start distinguishing broad behavioral characteristics. Yeah, so they did a lot of weird stuff to animals uh, for this study. <laughs> I had a for list. Sure. <laughs> so dogs were exposed to radiant heat almost to the point of burning their skin. Uh, they injected brewer's yeast into rat's paws to induce inflammation. Then they kind of jabbed them with a needle. Um, to, this is all like pain test. Uh, they put mice on a hot plate. They put an iron plug in a dog's trachea and used a magnet to induce coughing. Let me pause you there. Let me pause you there. So you're good. So we're going into a different uh, approach too. And I'm glad you're running through all this, but yeah. I just want to do a slight distinction of clarification. Okay. Um, the hot plate test is essentially, you know, you get a control on there, you turn up the hot plate and at some point the animal will get their feet off of the hot plate because it comes to unbearable. Then you give them something that's believed to be an analgesic. Uh, the hypothesis is that they stay on that plate longer or can tolerate higher temperatures. Um, it's the same with the tail flick test and with the brewer's yeast inducing inflammation. So all three of these tests are fairly common, not necessarily done in the same exact way that they that they did in this paper, but are all designed to gauge the analgesic potential of a treatment, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is they fed rats charcoal, which that's not that bad, but uh, they did a cardiovascular test on a dog where they stuck a tube down its throat and then cut off its air. Um, they got a monkey hooked on morphine, which is pretty funny. Junkie monkey. Uh, and then they gave... The part that I didn't like is they gave uh, 12 beagles were given my tragedy over 93 days, and then towards the end of that description, they said they were sacrificing autopsy. It's like, oh, did they have to die? Come on. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to get the podcast canceled for did talking about the doggies about go to heaven? That's what I want to know. <laughs> they definitely went to heaven. Okay, good. Um, good. And, and, you know, no one is operating on dockies nowadays um, yeah i so, didn't think so okay let's push that to the side let's talk just a little <laughs> bit about so at first we were talking about analgesical behavioral response okay. do these compounds seemingly increase the threshold uh to pain so they affect it reducing pain when we went to the charcoal one it's kind of interesting because another um well-known and well-documented property of opiates is that they can lead to constipation. Uh, the smooth muscle in your intestines and in your internal structures, when exposed to opiates, start moving more slowly. So I had never heard of this charcoal maneuver, but they were essentially uh, putting charcoal into the, the animal's body and uh, euthanizing, euthanizing the animal and then seeing how far that charcoal had made it through its in intestine. And the idea being, you know, with codeine or the, the standard opiates, it, it's maybe 50% more le or less traveled than the control. They wanted to see where metragenine landed there. So can it inhibit smooth muscles in the digestive system? Um, and, I, and I want to take a small note here just to mention sort of like how we were talking about the operant conditioning and... Um, all of these tests are pretty straightforward. The, the one that we, we went over with Ocrative a little bit more complicated involving like conscious and memory. Most of these are like physical based tests. So there's, we're not really doing some enormous room for interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if a, re a researcher or a scientist is like, oh, I got this brand new compound I found in the South American rainforest and I want to see if it's uh, an analgesic or if it could potentially be used for pain reduction. 
they're going to do these exact same tests. They're going to do the hot plate test. They're going to get a pig ilium or other animal intestine, see if it reduces contractions. Um, with the, uh, with the um, cardiovascular uh, tasks that they were talking about at the end with the dogs, that was looking at respiratory depression. Um, and then last two, and I think you mentioned this, but if not, definitely take it from here and, and explain what that was. But um, there was one to look at cough suppression. So opiates have always yeah. been known to help with coughs. So they're taking care of the pain reception. They're taking care of the internal testimony, uh, internal mobility of that smooth muscle. And they also want to know, uh, related to cough suppression, um, how well does it perform? Yeah, and uh, I remember um, it, on uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopia, he went to, I think it was maybe Thailand or Malaysia somewhere, and the guy gave him a kratom leaf that had sugar on it, uh, and he, you wrap the sugar in it, and you eat it, eat the leaf, and it's uh, for cough and cold. Uh-huh. Which, yep. um, codeine, I heard, um, there's a guy I'm going to interview, um next week for the podcast and he said uh he lives in england now and they sell codeine over the counter i guess i guess it's for cough uh yeah i mean i've been to uh israel i've been to russia i've been to the netherlands um tylenol 3 uh, canada is another one tylenol 3 is incetophetamine mixed with codeine um and is typically uh an over-the-counter medication um in all of those um in all of those regions you know it's only in, in the u.s where uh codeine or tylenol 3s have to be by prescription and, and you know the stigma of being a pain patient and all that jazz like you just don't see them available and will be used for, you know, if you have sores and a headache or you have a horrible cough, uh, consuming the classic opiates uh, is definitely a way to get that suppression going. In this study, they say they use uh, all, all doses of the compounds tested are expressed in terms of the free base. What, what does that mm -hmm. even mean? I mean, I know um, it's what it's... Richard Pryor did in the 70s. <laughs> Well, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that was the example I was going to use in that um, it's one that most people know. So the free base form of cocaine is crack. And, and I think that's correct. It, it could be the other way around. But anyways, it is a different molecular uh, um, arrangement uh, of the compound of interest, usually with or without a hydroxyl group. Um, you know, the base is generally with the loss of the acid tags, but um it's more when there are changes there and I am guessing, you know, I'm making an informed guess here, but it's more about the storage stability, mixability, visibility of the compounds you're trying to get an experiment with. Um, you know, so will we, and I think they mentioned this a little bit, but like they studied the difference between oral administration and, you know, uh, injections into the stomach or the muscle. Um, and so toggling back and forth between the free base um, and, the, and the sort of natural state of the drug, it's totally just like, uh, it's the same drug and it doesn't lead to necessarily different effects, but it can ease different routes of administration. Now they say they use nalorphine in here. Is that kind of like naloxone? Okay. So yeah, they were using nalorphine, which is not a compound that I was familiar with. Um, so of course we did go and, and dig and look at it. Here's what I'll say. First and foremost, I, I do not think it's naloxone. Um, I think where, which would be like what's in um, Suboxone's now or uh, the Narcan is yeah. just pure naloxone. What 
now, now loropine looks to be is kind of like um, suboxone in that is a opiate agonist and antagonist mix. Um, so you consume it and you have both a, a blocker of that drug and that drug in the same thing. It's like a 50-50 mix. Um, that's as best as I can and like really understand why they were doing this. And if I truly had a, what I think really is going on here is that um, this naloforine is sort of like an early progenitor of what became naloxone, right? So just back in their day, this was sort of the best to try to induce a withdrawal or to ups, you know, reduce competition with the, the standard opiates. Um, and I don't think it's really used in much favor um, or has been used recently. That's a guess, though. So, yeah, uh, the co so they, they did, I think they did some tests where they compared the effects of codeine. And at one point they said, well, codeine causes emesis and dys dyspnea in these animals. Uh, my tragedy was devoid of these particular properties. I mean, here's another one. Rep respiratory depression was more, this is on 156 under cardiovascular cardiovascular right. and respiratory it said respiratory depression was more frequent and more marked after codeine than after skf that the um word the, for my tragedy yeah <laughs> yes i had that i had that highlighted in, in green 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 talk about this because it's like so you know we laid out all the the tests that that they performed you know this is the primary research article these guys were performing these tests and then and sending out to the journals um so we're jumping into now the cardiovascular and respiratory effects. So they're looking at is, is, um, is re respiration depressed at all, which by the way, an overdose, it just means that you stop breathing because the opiates, uh, depress your respiratory activity so much. So okay. observations indicate that codeine uh, is more effective than metragenine in depressing, uh, respiration. So in 1972, they did some studies and they published studies saying, Hey guys, uh, it doesn't seem to be this that this compound or group of compounds that do cause uh, uh, provide analgesic therapeutic effects also do not cause the respiratory depressions, which is the most dangerous part of the drugs we're currently using. And then you just sort of sit there with your hands up, like, well, wh what are we doing today? <laughs> Some of the earliest studies here, th that was a major conclusion from that, you know? Yeah, I mean, if they knew this in 1972, I, my question is why hasn't a drug company like tried to cash in on it like uh glaxo smith klein <laughs> later uh, yeah because yeah. i mean they have you know, this research available and it they well, seems, and it's it like, seems to be promising so um i was thinking that exact same thing and it's like gosh why is no one like pursuing this i i have relationships in within people the scientists that are doing pain management you know drug development and this that and the other thing um, I always say, oh, well, of course they are. Of course somebody's doing it. But it's like, you know, are they? I mean, I don't know really where we're at. And what it'd be better to define what a pharmaceutical company is actually looking for, too. They want to take metragenine. They want to modify it a few ways, but not modify its behavior. Just attack on a few molecular, you know, atoms here and there. So then it could become, become um, patentable. Um, although this is derived from a natural source, there might be issues around IP. A anyways, I, I guess the broader point here is like legal issues and potential turnover and IP can sometimes outweigh 
uh, the fact that it might actually be better um, and worth exploring in terms of pain management for the, the populace. It, it's unfortunate, but their businesses and, and business uh, drives those decisions. What, what, what do you mean by IP? Intellectual property. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so just something happened that made it easier to develop opiates, I guess. Well, or take metragenine and then add a hydroxyl group um, and a weird, you know, tag. And then you can do that. You can patent that. You can't patent just the metragenine. Um, and then that lasts for so long. It, it's just, I find it hard to believe that there are not actively people doing this. But when I, you know, the other papers that we've prevented thus, presented thus far in, you know, late two, 2000s, like 2010 to now, it seems as if almost none of them, uh, except for one that got us this paper, but are unaware of these papers that are being done. And not, you know, it's a little disingenuous to say no one really has evaluated the effects of the analgesic value, um, uh, its effects on respiratory system, its ability to do, uh, suppress coughs um, on, on multiple animals at multiple doses and gotten a, you know, relatively steady cross-species profile of what this drug um, was. And, and that's exactly what Mako and his colleagues ha had done in this, in this old paper from 1972. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there is, there are opportunities to help people and the people that are in pain management, if they're not looking at the metragenine or creative alkaloids, I don't know what they're doing. And maybe, maybe the, the market niche is still open for you and I, Brian, to get a little, get a little, uh, R and D company going. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, I'm all about <laughs> for sure. I'd probably do the shipping or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's kind of because, I mean, this company was a drug company that developed drugs. I mean, they had a patent on amphetamine. The, the one guy went on to develop Lipitor. It's just kind of strange that they wouldn't uh, try to cash in on that. Yeah, um, and it, you, get, you get even more cynical, too, to say, like, well, after they got everybody hooked on their opiates, they also then start sending them constipation. So you got a patient that's chronic that has to now buy two or three pills from us um, versus and, and risk being addiction. And this is where it falls apart, because once a person's addicted, the cost of the insurance companies go way up. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It's uh, and I'm not proclaiming that this is this is what's happening, but it's that it's the classic tension between profits and people. Um, and you know, we can't always assume I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm with you on this and that this is a good thing. It could be a good thing for a lot of people. I don't know why they're not doing it. So I, and I don't talk to them, so I shouldn't really speculate, but it is just yeah. frustrating. I guess I'm just sharing in the, in the frustration there. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you just said about constipation, they actually found no gastrointestinal problems uh, with the charcoal test and rats. Right. Um, some people talk, say that Kratom gives them constipation, but I'm, my my guess about that is that people are doing toss and wash and they're just getting, it's just like a physical <laughs> constipation thing. Cause you're putting cement in your stuff because I never uh. get, I make tea out of Kratom and I've never gotten constipated from it. So I don't yeah. think it's the Kratom. And it's all dose dependent for sure. You yeah. know, it's, I don't know. We don't have the math on like, for their studies on uh, ilium movement, um, we'd have to look at the 
milligram per kilogram that they gave and then understand if that would be like a high dose or a low dose. But I mean, if you take enough of them, it can be there um, for sure. But it's, uh, it is just amazing that it's like, oh, we want some, the ideal thing to get us out of this opiate crisis would be something that relieves pain well, that doesn't have the side effect of constipation, that doesn't lead to respiratory depression and lethal effects, um, but also maintains uh, a solid or relatively the same degree of, of pain relief. And it's like, this paper lays all three of those out over eight studies that, that are very cross, very strongly pointing that like, I'm surprised there isn't just a, this isn't the like patient zero article and that a whole field of, of pain management scientists have went from here on to, to get more of it locked down. So uh, this is an opportunity to do so for any young neuroscientists or psychopharmacologists out there. Uh, experiments need to be done. Yeah. I, I wish uh, one of these guys were alive so we could ask them what actually yeah. happened. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure they're all dead. I know two of them are. I couldn't really. I I imagine Maco is too. Um, and the other thing um, that I found is it said that my tragedy is more potent when given orally, uh, and it says there's a pos- possible that the active analgesic moiety may be due to a metabolite of my tragedy. And this study I just blogged about, it came out last year, um, Andrew Krugel from Columbia University, um, he had a study that showed that mitragenine actually metabolizes in the liver <clears throat> into 7-hydroxymitragenine, which is the second mm. most abundant but more potent uh, alkaloid in kratom, right. which is pretty right, right. cool, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's seeing that and then and then you know reading that study and and they did um you know tests on mice and they did a uh, tests on um uh human liver and mouse liver um uh microsomes and uh, they found that there's an enzyme in the liver that actually adds oxidizes the mitragyny and changes it into 7O and uh-huh. that's why it uh it's uh, more effective as um eaten rather than uh injections so first pass metabolism is a really big thing especially with opiates right when it goes to your your digestive system that way so was he suggesting then that the metragenine that was delivered orally was more potent um but the the other like codeine that they were using wasn't like could it go through your liver be more potent and still as effective as the codeine? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about um, as compared to codeine. Um, but uh, but it, it it was kind of weird that it metabolizes. Because they said the 7-hydroxy is the stuff that has the more uh, opioid-like effects. Um, and they were saying before that if, it, you know, if a kratom extract has a more abundant alkaloid of 7-hydroxy, it might be more potent than the natural leaf. But that study showed that the 7-hydroxy stays, um, is stable in the liver while mitragenine, there's a couple of oxygen molecules mm-hmm. added to it and it turns into 7-hydroxy. Yeah. Yeah, there are always uh there are always wild enzymatic degradations that happen in the liver that can lead to more dangerous byproducts. Um it's something that I've had to run into the cannabis industry um making medicine for sick people, you know, immunocompromised people. Um pesticides and these other chemicals are bad. 
um, but they can turn into even worse uh, after being exposed exposed to heat and flame. Like there are very little huh. substances humans consume where they just like burn it right before they take it in. Um, yeah. And so there are real some real scary combinations that could come out of that. Um, as well, you know, consuming alcohol with acetaminophen is something that's highly recommended against because the aldehydes that are made due to enzymatic degradation in your liver can really start destroying your liver. Like they're, they're toxic for your liver in, in the worst way. So, um, yeah, the, it's certainly something to consider. Um, and you know, it's interesting. It was interesting. And, you know, I recently had just tried metaraginine on its own and I'm wondering that would have all gotten over hydroxy with this, uh, with this notion. I, I don't know. I guess I just don't know. Um, how, how if, if I if I think that that's that's the only thing that's happening and that's why we're seeing these effects or if it's um, you know a little bit more complicated than that and, and the effects are more based on a symphony of uh, those interactions yeah because I think they also when they tested um, I think they uh, tested the brain tissue the mice they also they found my tragedy as well but there was a higher amount of 70. And um, and then it said some of the seven O, that they gave them just seven O, and a little bit of that turned back into my tragedy. Now, like they tested toxicity, uh, with this study, with this Maca study, and they gave a uh, lots of my tragedy to mice and rats. A mouse was given mm-hmm. nine hundred twenty milligrams per kilogram. And a rat was given 807 milligrams per kilogram. And as far as I can tell, I, from what I read, I think, like, humans get an average of, like, 25 to 50 when they take Kratom. So I, I don't know if that's equivalent in um, mice and rats. However, they, they it seems like a, a large amount of my tragedy, and they... Um, observed no toxic effects in uh, mice and rats. 803, just to begin with, is a pretty big dose uh, of that, far bigger than what anybody, you know, any products on the market now. So, yeah, they were trying to go for the LD50 here, and it said that only produced diarrhea, observed, two dogs, oral doses, no side effects. I think um, the dogs got some more side effects. Uh, I think uh, the one dog got clonic convulsion, respiratory depression, panning, prostration after an IV dose. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A 31.8, but an 80 milligram per kilogram oral dose did not induce side effects. So I don't know what that... And it showed sinusoidal cellularity in dog livers. Um, so I don't oh, know what like that burnt, means. Burnt dogs are also yeah. allergic to chocolate, so I don't know if dogs are just weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, yeah, it's like a, you know, it's like a spot on an alcoholic's liver. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, man, I thought this was cool because like very rarely will you, very rarely now, our labs afforded the ability to do multiple animal studies with different species of animals. So, yeah. yes, there are moral reasons now in the U.S. why we're not testing this stuff on dogs. Um, but even like if you're a, a mouse, a rodent lab, you're either a mouse lab or you're a rat lab. If you're doing like pigs and ilium, then that's what you're using there. It's, and 
this is nice in that it was before a time where everybody had to specialize so much and you get your group together, you have the ability to run these tests on different species um, and you're finding comparable findings across the board right away. It's, uh, you know, I always appreciate reading the scientific studies written, you know, with a typewriter in 72 because it's much less sort of regurgitation of everything that is the modern scientific journal article these days. And it's more of a, it's almost like a lab report that you got an assignment in class where they're just like very straightforward. This is what we did. This is why we were doing it. Here's what happened. Hooray. You know, it's, it's not, it's not mixed in a lot of contemporary, just sort of fluff and posturing, which is real nice to read. And and yeah, I I was surprised. Like they did a rhesus monkey. Uh, It said, well, in the abstract, I laughed. Uh, it was like the first paragraph says it uh, fails to produce excitement in cats, <laughs> <laughs> which I, that was just. I'm like, okay, they found that out. Well, that was that's good to know. Uh, mm-hmm. It said it failed to alter the usual hostile behavior in a re- in a rhesus monkey. <laughs> so, <laughs> kratom does not uh, keep monkeys from being assholes. It was mm-hmm. it was just interesting mm-hmm. just how many animal studies you said they don't use dogs anymore or monkeys um i in the US i'd be yeah. very surprised except you know <laughs> in the biomedical realm right if you're at a yeah. vet school um i'm sure there's uh animal husbandry over there you're working with animals all the time that doesn't doesn't seem that you'd be doing behavioral psychopharm on them and like giving them drugs and observing what happens um but yeah, yeah, not these type of studies. I mean, it's a it's a problem with a modern, you know, U.S. research enterprise, universities and colleges. And there's a, a few good anecdote stories from there. But like things have gotten very sterile, very rigid. Um, things have to be done a certain way. And even though it would be beneficial for a lab to have multiple species to test through. And, and we did in grad school, we had C. elegans, we had uh, the zebrafish and then we had mice but we weren't running the same experiment across all of them. Um, mm. But the bummer of that is it just reduces and prevent, it minimizes the potential um, uh, serendipitous discovery that can have when things are sort of, you know, a little loose around the edges, not everything super sterile. Most of the great scientific uh, discoveries we've had in the lab are like, it was late at night and dude threw his peachy dishes in the sink and he's like, oh, I'll clean them tomorrow comes back the next day and he notices that the, the mold and the growth on these has been pushed back by this mysterious white substance. What's that? That ended up being penicillin. Um, uh, yeah. So there's also, you know, for a more sort of public health uh, thing, there were uh, in my pharmacology department at Tulane, they were working on uh, blood flow and heart attacks. Um, they were one of the first to start doing NO2 research. Um, they recognized that when they were blowing smoke in their lab, they were allowed to just smoke cigarettes in their lab. When the, sm- when the smoke hit the uh, stomach muscles of this rat, they were performing uh, you know, different dissections on to get some data. They noticed that it started moving faster and beating faster. And long story short there, that's, that was the birth of where we are now today with Viagra. Um, like that's how that all started is because they were smoking in lab and, and they noticed that effect. Um, and you know, we do a bunch of you do a bunch of other research by keeping those animals. So that there was this other one that came out of that lab, it was an AIDS HIV drug. But like they did the tests in mice, they did the tyson rats. They wanted to get up to humans, um, and by the time they got up 
in humans, it's a potential miracle drug for HIV and AIDS treatment. And what it turned out to be is that it, the, the effectiveness of these compounds is so tightly with your internal biome and your gut bacteria that when you're testing in animals where it was sterile, 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 and then go to a human, which is not sterile, the drug doesn't work anymore. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Is there anything else that you've observed that, you know, happened in 1972 that wouldn't happen today? I mean, I guess you kind of laid it all out there. The Yeah, there was. I mean, there's a, a very big one. And what's nice about this paper is it was not in the world that we have today. And when you read the, this paper, I mean, it very clearly is saying um, – we have a problem with our cardiac uh, analgesics and we need to find better ones like that reduce constipation that um, are not antagonized by lorophone has like reduced overdose risk um, and all of that. And so they're starting from that point alone. If you go back to the studies of now and, you know, it'd be great to talk to uh, Dr. Schwager um, and the mental health review. I think we're going to be doing next week is fantastic. Because this example of a paper that didn't have to um, introduce drug hysteria, you know, uh, panic. And so when you look at the modern papers, it's like opiate epidemic. This is killing people, fear mongering, like baseless claims. And we need to figure this out. Like that, the whole attitude and approach from these guys in 1972 saying, hey, we do need something like this. Let's give it a try and see what happens versus, hey, you know, people are dying. We need to make it a schedule one and we need more science. This, that, and the other thing, like it's a whole different narrative that uh, current scientific studies are forced into, you know, that I think we've talked about before, but um, it's a refreshing thing for me, I think, to understand that these guys were doing it um, for the purposes of trying to find compounds that would be better without the side effects. Um, and, and that was sort of it. It wasn't a, discussions of addiction and dependence and public health, um, all of that sort of absent from this. So it's nice to, and it's, a, it's almost like a vacation to get back into the mindset um, when they were there. So less politics involved. Um, yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah. Um, and, they, and these guys were kind of, they were born in the twenties. So it's probably safe to say that they were probably interested in science as teenagers before, uh, even uh, like marijuana might have been uh, outlawed and all that, all that kind of stuff happened. So they probably don't have. And '72, I think, is when Nixon lost launched a drug war. So they right. probably didn't even have that whole context for, for uh, you know, they didn't have the benefit like me of growing up with Nancy Reagan and uh, just say no and. You know, mm -hmm, your brain mm -hmm. on drugs commercials in the 80s. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, the, the fight against honest drug science uh, started, yeah. and we still still do, uh, deal with it today, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, the only thing in the discussion here, you know, um, in search for our potent, safe analgesics, possessing a profile of qualities which are superior to those of an existing agent's, Metragenine exhibited activity in animals, which seems to per, um, potential usefulness in man, have potential use, usefulness in man. Um, he goes on to say that it differs in other analgesics by alleviating brain threshold in the rat, mouse, and dog with minimal side effects. Uh, metragenine is, act, is an active mortality involved in most uh, optimal process. Um, 
metragenine is qualitatively different from the narcotic analgesics in cats exhibit only a weak stimulation and is more akin to restlessness where there's evidence, uh, no evidence of disorientation um, or discernible influence on respiration uh, where, where metragenine was. So, you know, they're, they very clearly laid out, like, these are the problems we're trying to fix. And we've done a, 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 a set of multiple behavioral tests in multiple animals, and all of them seem to suggest it's effective. And it, while also, you know, doing that, that analgesic treatment, it's, um, you know, I, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that we were able to get this in, you know, the podcast before this, or a few before this journal clubs, we were looking at uh, broad historical approaches. This is one where we are now in the mindset of the 1970s. And for all the scientists and researchers out there, and myself, you know, it's not always a good thing to filter by year where it's like, oh, I don't want to read anything that's 2010 or older, right? I want the latest science. I want the best science. Well, you know, it's just shit gets telephoned along the way and it's always helpful and it's really exciting and fun to go back and, and see what people were saying back then. They're generally more clear, less bluff, um, and just tell you straight what it is. So, I, you know, I really enjoyed this paper. This is like the last sentence. On the basis of the apparent qualitative differences between mitragenine and the narcotic analgesic agents in these preliminary studies, it can be anticipated that new chemicals whose structural configurations are quite unlike the morphine-type structure may well produce analgesic properties which are unaccompanied by the limiting side effects of morphine-like drugs. And thank you, Dr. Jonathan Cachet. That was the Kratom Science Journal Club, and it's produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is Moonrunner. Like and subscribe to our podcast on any platform, and check out ccvresearch.com to see what Dr. John is up to, and take care.